Well, we'll bow together and let us just come before the Lord and we'll look on to Him for help as we meet. Our Heavenly Father, we bow before Thee and we wait in Thy presence in the name of Thy well-beloved Son. We thank Thee for this day, Thy day, for the opportunity of gathering together in the house of the Lord once again. We bless Thee for the week. Just end it for all of Thy help and power, Thy presence with us in the Bible conference meetings. Lord, we lift up our hearts to Thee in praise for drawing alongside, for speaking to our souls. And yet, Lord, we cannot relive that week. We have to move on, and we pray that even this day Thou wilt take us forward, Thou wilt come and visit our souls with power, with help from heaven, with times of refreshing. Lord, bless us now in this class, we pray. Remember each soul who will be under the Word. Remember our friends who join with us by means of the webcast. We pray that our hearts will be knit with iron, that we will hear Thy voice, that we will be spoken to, that the hand of God will be on this time around the book. We pray, Lord, for our Sunday school as well, remembering all the teachers, remembering the classes. O Lord, we pray that Thou wilt draw near to each one who brings the Word to these little ones. And remember the youth Bible classes as well. Lord, give help to Thy servants, and may the Holy Spirit move and visit young men and young women. Lord, visit us all today. We are in need of help, need of the power of God. Let it come. Let Thy hand be with us. May the Holy Spirit descend in all His fullness. And so, Lord, abide with us today. May this be a glorious Sabbath as we meet in Thy house, as we gather around Thy Word. Lord, we pray for the help of the Holy Ghost. Without Him we can do nothing. And we pray that Thou wilt shed abroad Thy Spirit upon our souls afresh and come and meet with us, even as we open up the book and we gather ourselves unto Thee. So hear prayer now and continue with us, we ask in Jesus' name and for His glory. Amen. Amen. We turn to Nahum chapter 3. I want to read that chapter with you at this point in the Bible class. I welcome you to the time around the Word this morning, and we pray that the Lord will be with us and touch our hearts as we meet before Him. And so, the book of Nahum and the third chapter, let's read this chapter together, and may the Lord write His Word in all our hearts. Nahum chapter 3. Woe to the bloody city, it is all full of lies and robbery. The prey departeth not, the noise of a whip, and the noise of the rattling of the wheels, and of the prancing horses, and of the jumping chariots. The horseman lifteth up both the bright sword and the glittering spear. And there is a multitude of slain, and a great number of carcasses, and there is none end of their corpses. They stumble upon their corpses because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts that selleth nations through her whoredoms and families through her witchcrafts. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will discover thy skirts upon thy face, and I will show the nations thy nakedness and the kingdoms thy shame. And I will cast abominable filth upon thee, and make thee vile, and will set thee as a gazing stock. And it shall come to pass that all they that look upon thee shall flee from thee, and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? When shall I seek comforters for, her, for thee? Art thou better than populous No, that was situate among the rivers, that had the waters round about it? whose rampart was the sea, and her wall was from the sea. Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was infinite. Put and Lubim were thy helpers. Yet was she carried away, she went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed in pieces at the top of all the streets, and they cast lots for her honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains." Thou also shalt be drunken, thou shalt be hid, thou, shalt, thou also shalt seek strength because of the enemy. All thy strongholds 
shall be like fig trees with the first ripe figs. If they be shaken, they shall even fall into the mouth of the eater. Behold thy people, in the midst of thee are women. The gates of thy land shall be set wide open unto thine enemies. The fire shall devour thy bars. Draw thee waters for the siege. Fortify thy strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar and make, make strong the brick kiln. There shall the fire devour thee. The sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locust. Thou hast multiplied thy merchants above the stars of heaven. The canker worm spoileth and flieth away. Thy crowned are as the locusts, and thy captains as the great grasshoppers, which camp on the hedges in the cold day. But when the sun ariseth, they flee away, and their place is not known where they are. Thy shepherds slumber, O king of Assyria. Thy nobles shall dwell in the dust. Thy people is scattered upon the mountains, and no man gathereth them. There is no healing of thy bruise. Thy wound is grievous. All that hear thee brew it, that word means report, of thee shall clap the hands over thee, for upon whom hath not thy wickedness passed continually. And we know that God will bless the reading of his word. It's a very solemn chapter, <coughs> and we pray indeed that the Holy Spirit will write his truth upon all of our hearts. Now, the book of Nahum uh, is the divinely given and inspired record of the destruction of Nineveh in the year 612 B.C. Nineveh was the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria. That kingdom ruled for about 300 years in ancient times, Old Testament times, as we would often put it. The history of Nineveh is interesting. It is also very informative and very important to get a hold of to some degree, as much as we can. I want to take you at this point to Genesis 10, because the first mention of Nineveh is in Genesis chapter 10, and I want you to see this. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 10, and look with me at a number of verses. We begin at verse number 8 in this chapter. Genesis 10, verse number 8. And there we read, And Cush begat Nimrod. And just note that man, Nimrod. Uh, keep him in mind. We're going to say a few things about him. Let's just read these few verses. Verse 8 still, He began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, Even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. We'll just pause there for a moment, because these verses present to us a person, a man who was prominent in Old Testament history about 2,500 years before the birth of our Savior, this man Nimrod. He was the grandson of Ham, who was the younger son of Noah. The description of this man Nimrod portrays the picture of a man who was defiant of God, a man who founded his own kingdom. That kingdom was punctuated with a, a number of cities that we've read about there in verses 10 and 11. Notice the opening words of verse 10, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. And he's associated therefore with Babel. And you've you read in chapter 11 about the Tower of Babel and all that happened at that particular time in those days so long ago. And so he's identified with Babel, and also you'll find then mentioned four other places in verse number 10, four cities. So he was a man who had much territory under his belt, so to speak. He, he uh, was associated with Babel. He found at these four cities that are mentioned in verse number 10. Uh, the mention then of Nineveh comes up in verse 11. Out of that land went forth Asher and built it Nineveh. Now, if you've got a marginal Bible, you'll notice that the reading of it is this. He went out 
into Assyria. If you've got a marginal Bible, you will see that in our authorized version. Uh, so that's the marginal reading. And I take that reading because I believe it helps us. And what it means is Nimrod relocated to the area known as Assyria. And verse 11 mentions this, and that's how it reads, he went out into Assyria. Then read on, and build it Nineveh. And it mentions two more cities, uh, Rehoboth and Kela. And then it goes on to say in verse 12, and Resen between Nineveh and Kela, the same as a great city. There are four more cities there mentioned in those verses. So this man, Nimrod, had a tremendous power, obviously a great influence in his day. He's a man who founded his own kingdom. He's a man who was defiant of God. That's the main meaning of that language where it says in verse 9, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the sense there is of being against God. So this is Nimrod who was defiant of God. He founded a great kingdom. He had uh, set up eight cities that are actually mentioned here in these verses. And then Nineveh is also mentioned, as it says there, he went out of uh, Asher, or he went out into Assyria, as I've told you the reading is, and he built Nineveh. So it's all to say this, that uh, this city of Nineveh that we're seeing in the book of Nahum, that's also mentioned in the book of Jonah, was originally built by Nimrod. And that is very important just to note as to think about the history of this city of Nineveh and the, its eventual destruction. When we see its origin, when we see the ancient history that concerns it with regard to Nimrod, and he being the builder of that city, we begin to get an understanding of why it was such a wicked place, why down through time it was notorious for its wickedness. Actually, ancient history of that time, and that is available uh, from various sources, tells us that ancient history that Nimrod, or sorry, that Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, was named after Nimrod's son, a man by the name of Ninos. And so the very first three letters of Nineveh are taken from the name of the son of Nimrod, a man, as I say, called Ninos. So that's a little about the history. Note that in your Bibles. We haven't time to stay with it, just to, uh, to show you this, how ancient this city actually was, its origins, where it goes back to in terms of how it was built, etc., etc. It became the capital then of the Assyrian Empire. Remember what the words mean? He went out into Assyria and he built Nineveh. And Nineveh became the capital. And so being an ancient city, becoming the capital of Assyria, it was the dwelling place of the emperors or the kings of that great empire, the Assyrian Empire. Go now, please, to Second Kings. We'll just look at a couple of verses here because they are helpful with regard to uh, Nineveh being the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the dwelling place of its kings. Second Kings 19 and the verse 36 and verse 37. Second Kings 19. And it says, So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And so here's a man called Sennacherib, he's king of Assyria, in these days when Hezekiah was the king of Judah. And if you know something, that's 2 Kings 19, uh, verse number 36. If you know anything about Hezekiah, you will know that Sennacherib, uh, the king of the Assyrians, brought his armies in Hezekiah's days, and they besieged the city of Jerusalem. They surrounded it. Remember the man who was a spokesman for, for Sennacherib was called Rabshakeh. And surely you've heard that name if you know anything about the story of Hezekiah. He was the spokesman. He came and he blasphemed God. We actually looked at this a couple of weeks ago in this class as we dealt with uh, these minor prophets at an earlier point just a few weeks back. But anyhow, we are familiar with Sennacherib, but here's one of the kings of Assyria in the days of Hezekiah. So that kingdom that Nimrod uh, founded and the city of Nineveh that he built is found down through the generations. It's all there 
it's seen clearly in the Scriptures at different points, and this is one of them. But also what it says in verse 36, he departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. Why did he depart? Well, I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. Verse 35 tells us that the angel of the Lord went out and smote in the camp of the Assyrians an hundred fourscore and five thousand. 185,000 soldiers were smitten in one night by the angel of the Lord, and it brought an end to the, to the siege of Jerusalem, and the Assyrians were utterly defeated in that particular piece of warfare. And then Sennacht went back, as it says, uh, he returned and dwelt at Nineveh, back to his capital, back to the city where the Assyrian kings dwelt. Look at verse 37 now. Just notice this verse before we leave, 2 Kings 19. And it came to pass, as he was worshipping in the God, sorry, in the house of Nisroch, his God, that Adramalak and Sharezer, his sons, smote him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Armenia. And Ezarhaddon, his son, that's another son of Sennacherib, reigned in his stead. So he went back to his capital. He thought he was safe there. God had smitten 185,000 of his soldiers in one night and brought an end to the siege of Jerusalem. And Sennacherib then went back to Nineveh, thinking that he was safe there, but then he was murdered. He was assassinated by two of his sons, who then fled themselves into the land of Armenia. And how interesting Old Testament history is, as you look at these little snippets of information, and then another of his sons took the kingdom and became the emperor, Ezarhaddon. And so, we see something here that actually reminds us of the wickedness of that city, not only what happened to Sennacherib himself, but notice that he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch as God. That is interesting because here he is, he's worshipping in the house of his gods. As I said earlier, he feels he's safe. He goes into the temple of his gods and he's worshipping there. And yet in the very midst of his worship, pagan worship, idolatrous worship, he is slaughtered by two of his sons. There's no, there's no safety in paganism. There is no shelter in the worship of false deities and so on. That city was a symbol of evil, therefore, that marked the Assyrian Empire throughout the ages. And actually, Assyria was a dominant empire for 300 years, from 900 to 600 B.C. or thereabouts. Uh, the Assyrians reigned over that part of the world in those days so long ago. It was a mighty empire. It lasted 300 years. There are very few empires that last that long, but Assyria actually did. So, that's a background to what we're finding here. If you'll go back now, please, to the book of Nahum and look with me a little more at what we have to see here today as we close out our study on this book. So, what I want to think about now is God's dealings with Nineveh. We've seen its origin. We've seen something of its history, little snippets of information that we're able to glean from these Scriptures. But God dealt with Nineveh, and He dealt with it in two ways. The first way was the great awakening that came in the days of Jonah. And we've already seen that when we looked, when we surveyed the book of Jonah for a week or two. In Jonah's day, there was a great awakening. That was around 840 B.C., uh, and we read about that in, jo in Jonah chapter 3. The whole chapter records what happened. Jonah arrived, he preached, God moved, and there was an awakening in that city. So that's one way in which the Lord dealt with Nineveh at a point in history in Old Testament days. He actually sent that great awakening that we have studied to some degree when we looked at Jonah. The second way in which God dealt with Nineveh was in wrath for sin. So there was the awakening from sin in Jonah's day, but now when we come to the book of Nahum, we find that there is nothing for this city but wrath because of their sin. Now this must be understood carefully, and I mentioned this in the last study, the first study we did in Nahum. 
And remember again, we're just surveying these books. We're not going into every verse in detail at all. It's just to give you an overview. But it's so interesting just to see what they all mean, what their message is, what they have to show us about the day and the times of these men who wrote these books. Anyhow, 100 years after the days of Jonah, Nahum came along. And so he lived in the mid-700s or around that time. He predicted Nineveh's destruction. And that destruction came about another hundred years later. So that's the time period between Jonah and Nahum. I should have said there that uh, the, the period between Jonah and Nahum was 200 years because I've already shown you that in the last study, uh, the first study we did in this book. So 200 years after Jonah's day, Nahum comes along and that's what his book is all about. It is a, it is a message of wrath for sin. So the effects of the awakening in Jonah's day have worn off. That's the sad thing. These people who had experienced such a great awakening, the whole city was converted in Jonah's day. As I said, exactly the most remarkable case of awakening in the whole of biblical history. Not even the day of Pentecost precedes or supersedes rather in volume and in, in results what happened in Nineveh in Jonah's day. The entire city was converted. Men, women, and children. And yet, they returned to their sins. Remember that Nineveh was the capital city of the empire of Assyria. And that means that even though the city itself was reached by God and awakened by God, the, the, the empire continued, generally speaking, in its wickedness and its sin, and therefore would have influenced Nineveh itself as time went by, and the sins began to creep back in into the capital city and overtake that place and the people who lived there. Now, what we're seeing here is God's dealings with Nineveh. Number one, we've mentioned it, the awakening from sin. Number two, wrath for sin. That's how you sum it up. Now, in that light, God teaches us His sovereignty in His dealings with sinful men. Sovereignly, He deals with them either in sovereign mercy or He deals with them in sovereign judgment. The Ninevites were Gentile people. This is the fascinating thing about the awakening in Jonah's day in the city of Nineveh. The Ninevites were Gentiles. They weren't Jews. They were pagan. They were heathen. They were sunk in idolatry. They had no knowledge of God. The city was full of great wickedness. It deserved nothing but the wrath of God. Just look back quickly to Jonah chapter 1, verse number 1, and you will see this. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. There's the condition of Nineveh in Jonah's day. Their wickedness had risen to a level that God no longer could tolerate it. And so there is an insight into the wickedness of that city. And so they have no previous knowledge of God. They're sunk in idolatry. They're full of great wickedness. They deserve, only the, they deserve only the wrath of God. And yet, brethren and sisters, in the days of Jonah, the Lord had mercy on the inhabitants of Nineveh. He granted them grace. But a few generations later, they returned to their sinful ways, and the Lord brought His wrath on them. And so, this was righteous, and this was deserved judgment in the days of, of Nahum. But let me remind you of something. I want you to see this as you turn with me to Romans chapter 9. I want be reminded today of this fact that I've just already mentioned. God sovereignly deals with men in two ways, either in mercy or in judgment. It's one or the other. And so we see him dealing with Nineveh in mercy on one hand, and then 200 years later he deals with Nineveh in judgment on the other hand. Now turn to Romans 9 and look with me at this chapter, verse 15 of Romans chapter 9. And it says, For he that is God saith to Moses, I will have mercy 
on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, that truth in Romans 9, 15 is vividly seen in the event of Nineveh being spared in the days of Jonah. God says here, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is that saying? It's simply saying that when people receive mercy and compassion, it's God's sovereign prerogative to show it. They don't deserve it. They're not entitled to it. And yet they receive it because God sovereignly ordains to show them mercy. The words in Romans 9.15 are quoted from Exodus 33 when God spoke to Moses. When he passed by Moses and he showed him his glory and so forth. Exodus 33.34 And he made this statement, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And so when we look at this, we can see very clearly the truth that is here. And it was seen in the days of Jonah. God sovereignly and freely showed mercy to the inhabitants of the capital of the Assyrian Empire when they did not deserve that mercy. They were just as wicked then as they were in the days of Nahum. So why were they spared in the days of Jonah? And the only answer is because God sovereignly chose them and sovereignly showed them mercy, not because they were less wicked in Jonah's day. They were just as wicked. Their wickedness has come right up to heaven, yet God spared them. They did not deserve that mercy, and yet they received it. And you see, folks, that is always true. For the recipients, any other recipients, all other recipients of the mercy of God, no matter who they are, if they are from a pagan, wicked background with no knowledge of God previously, no uh, understanding of the gospel, no matter who they are, if they're from that background or from a gospel-privileged background, nobody deserves the mercy of God. That's a very hard lesson to learn for human beings. I mean human beings in general. But you'll also hear it among some who claim to be evangelical. And they'll say, for example, what about the heathen out there? Out there in those lands who have never heard the gospel. Will God, will He send them to hell? Will, will they be lost in the final analysis? Or how is it with them? And all kinds of things are said about the heathen in these lands that have never been reached with the gospel at all. And, and some will say, you know, it's not fair. It's just not fair that they would go to hell. My dear friend, that is so wrong. Absolutely wrong. Because no one deserves the mercy of God. It doesn't matter who they are. Now, you take those who have mentioned gospel-privileged people, people who grow up in the Christian church, I mean in the invisible church, and they are taught and they are instructed and the things of God, do they deserve the mercy of God any more than those who have never heard the gospel? And the answer is no. Because gospel-privileged people are just as wicked in heart as those who have never heard the gospel. And therefore, they don't deserve mercy. And that means that if they do receive mercy, it's because God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will show compassion on those whom I, to whom I will show compassion. That's it. And we must understand that the Lord may sovereignly withhold mercy from sinners and He leads them to pursue the path on which they are already traveling. It's the path of the love and the pursuit of sin. Look at Romans 9 again, verse 18. And here's a very solemn statement. And we need to understand this statement properly. Romans 9, 18. Therefore hath He mercy on whom he will have mercy. Now listen to this. And whom he will, he hardeneth. Now how do we understand that verse? Well, here is an explanation I want to give you. 
It tells us here, God hardens sinners. But how do we understand that? He hardens sinners in the sense that He leaves them to the hardness of the hearts that they have already. He leaves them to the sin that they're already pursuing. He leaves them on the way that they're already traveling. Let's understand this. Man by nature does not have anything else but a hard heart. You remember, in fact, if you look here at verse 17 of Romans 9, he brings in Pharaoh. Just read this verse with me. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. What do you read about Pharaoh in the book of Exodus? You read that whenever Moses went into Pharaoh at first to warn him, to tell him about God and the fact that he was to release God's people from their bondage, Pharaoh hardened his heart. That was a deliberate act on the part of Pharaoh. And God left Pharaoh. To the hardening, to, the, to that situation, to that position in which he already had hardened his own heart. And then you read about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. And that was righteous judgment on Pharaoh. These are terrible things. These are solemn things. But these things are true. And we need to understand them. No man deserves the mercy of God. All men by nature have hard hearts. Even our little children, our young people, they harden their hearts against God. If God does not show them mercy, He will then leave them to the consequences of the hardening of their own hearts that they bring about themselves. And they will perish. That's the truth. And you see it with regard to Nineveh. On one hand, God showed them mercy. On the other hand, he left them to their sins a few generations later. How solemn that is and how, how striking it is. And so the world of the ungodly, the world of the ungodly all around us, they have originated in defiance of God. They were born with hearts that are wicked. They go astray from the womb. Our own children do that. That's the state of the world. That's the state of humanity. They live in rebellion against God. And that world of the ungodly is headed to destruction, all because of their own sin. And that's the vital thing to underline. As we deal with these issues, we must always see that man is responsible, man is accountable for his sin. He doesn't deserve anything but wrath. If any sinner, whether pagan or brought up in a Christian environment, ever receives mercy, it's because of God's sovereign grace. The rest are left to their sins. They're left on the road that they're already traveling. They've already hardened their hearts. They love their sin. They love the world. They want their own way. It's, it's their will, not God's will that they want. And therefore, Nineveh came under destruction because of the fact that what the Lord had shown them in the days of Jonah, they eventually turned away from it. Yes, that generation was converted, according to Jonah 3, and we certainly believe that. But then the next generations went their own way and they perished in their sin. Let's just look at a few things here. The three chapters of Jonah, or sorry, the three chapters of Nahum, provide an overview of the divine destruction that the Lord does meet out on the ungodly. I've been setting up the scene here, talking about what happened whenever Nineveh was originated by Nimrod way back in Genesis 10 and bringing you forward now to Jonah's day when God dealt with them in mercy and then Nahum's day when he dealt with them in destruction. And all three chapters of this book of Nahum are basically dealing, giving an overview 
of the divine destruction that the Lord meets out upon the ungodly. The foundation of that destruction. Let's turn to name one and look with me at verse number two. Here is Nahum's message. Here's where it begins. And notice what it says. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. Again, if you perhaps have a marginal Bible, I'm not sure it shows it or not, but those words, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth, may be also read from the Hebrew this way. The Lord is a jealous God and a revenger. The Lord is a jealous God and a revenger. Now, in what sense is God jealous? You have to be careful with that. You need to understand that because, well, if you and I are jealous, that's a sinful jealousy. And yet, we know that can't be true of God. So, what does it mean when it says God is jealous? The Lord is a jealous God. Well, the word jealous may also be read zealous. It's the same Hebrew word. The word zealous coming from the adjective zeal, zeal for God, being zealous for God. So that's helpful because what it actually means is it's a pointer to the holiness of God. God is infinitely and unchangeably holy. He is jealous over His own holiness. He's zealous for His own holiness. Therefore, He must deal with sin. And this is the foundation of divine destruction. I mean destruction in every sense. When the Lord sends calamities into the world and, 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 and nations are overrun with floods and tornadoes and, and all the rest of it and, and things crumble and, and maybe the economy collapses and, and that's all happening around us as I speak to you. Things are collapsing in this world. Why is that? Because God is a jealous God. He's jealous for His own glory, for His own name. And there comes the point where He cannot tolerate sin anymore. And so look at this verse again. God is jealous and the Lord revenges. Or as I read with you, the Lord is a jealous God and a revenger. Because on to say, and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on His adversaries he reserveth wrath for his enemies. And so this second verse at the very head of this book reveals to us something about the holy jealousy of God. He's jealous for his own name. He is jealous for his own holiness. He will not tolerate indefinitely the sins of men, the sins of nations, the sins of the leaders of the world. He will not tolerate this. He will bring them down in His own time and in His own way. Make no mistake about that. Here is Assyria, the greatest empire that the world had seen. Really? In ancient times, as far as the records are concerned, then Babylon came along and Medes and Persians and so on, but Assyria was a mighty empire. But let me tell you, my friend, Assyria collapsed. And it collapsed for this reason. This is the foundation of divine destruction, the destruction that the Lord brings upon nations of men is founded on His personal holiness of character. The first seven verses, I'll just tell you this before I move on here, verses 1 to 7 of Nahum 1 give a general description of divine wrath. And then from verse 8 to the close of the chapter, basically, there's a particular description of His wrath against Nineveh. So that's what the first chapter is all about. It introduces us to the reason why Nineveh fell the reason why Nineveh was destroyed, because God is holy. It's a warning, standing warning in the Bible to sinful men today that you cannot expect to escape the consequences of your sin. God is holy. Therefore, He will deal with sin. So that's the foundation of divine destruction the doom of Nineveh was certain because of Nineveh's sin, sin against the holiness of God. Then you turn to chapter 2. And here we have in chapter 2 the fearfulness of divine destruction. 
Because chapter 2 depicts the fearfulness of God's wrath and God's judgment. Now just look at one section of the chapter. We haven't time to go through it all, but go down to verse number 11. And notice what it says. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions where the lion, even the old lion, walked and the lions whelp and none made them afraid? What has been said there is this in verse 11. The Assyrians, Nineveh itself, in times gone by, were a people of great ferociousness who struck fear into the hearts of their enemies. All other nations were petrified because of the Assyrians' power. They were like lions. Look at verse number 12. The lion did tear in pieces enough for his whelps and strangled for his lionesses and filled his holes with prey and his dens with raven. That is metaphorical language. Taking the lion and the lion's behavior and the lion's actions. That's what Nineveh was like. That's what the Assyrians in general were like. They were a people who were, were feared by everybody else. But... God broke their ferocity and their power. Look at verse 13. Behold, I am against thee, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will burn her chariots in the smoke, and the sword shall devour thy young lions, and I will cut off thy prey from the earth, and the voice of thy messengers shall no more be heard. And so on those verses you're given an insight into how fearful Nineveh was, and the Assyrians were, in their prime. They were like lions. And then suddenly God says, I'm going to destroy you. And so chapter 2 sets before us the fearfulness of divine destruction. I've already indicated that Nahum 2 details the fearful fall of Nineveh inflicted by the joint armies of the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians in the year 612. And so if you read through this chapter very carefully, you will find that Nineveh, with regard to its thoroughfares and its streets, it all became, became the scene of fearful battles and awful overthrow in the very, very streets of that city. For example, look at verse number 4. The chariots shall rage in the streets... They shall jostle one another in the broad ways. They shall seem like torches. They shall run like the lightnings. Those words are describing the battles that went on in the streets of Nineveh. When the Babylonians and the Medes and Persians came and the streets were filled with, with uh, warfare and fighting and battle and so on, it's all about Nineveh. It's not about something in the future. It's all about what happened in Nineveh. I say it's not something that happened in the future because I remember hearing about a, an elderly man who's long, long ago dead and he lived in my part of the country uh, where I grew up and he believed that verse 4 of Nineveh chapter 2 was, about, was a prediction of cars in our day and times uh, jostling one another in the streets in other words, car accidents and all that kind of stuff. And he, he really believed that. They, he was very sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. It's got nothing to do with cars or vehicle accidents. And I, I'm not saying this to be funny. I'm just telling you that you have to be careful how you interpret the Bible. Nahum 2 is describing for us what happened in Nineveh. Not what happens in the streets of Balamina or Belfast or anywhere else in terms of car accidents and uh, so forth. He even saw their, their lights in that verse. He talks about torches and running like lightnings, speedy cars and, and their flashing lights. Great imagination, but I'm afraid it wasn't the truth. Uh, so be careful how you interpret the Word of God. Uh, it's all about the, the chariots physically coming into Nineveh, drawn by their horses and all that happened but there's the fearfulness of divine destruction. You see, my dear friend, as I said, Nineveh was the capital. Nineveh was a great power, and God just reduced it to nothing. He brought it to nothing. 
and it was utterly destroyed under his divine judgment. Chapter 3 then, the chapter we read this morning, here we have the fullness of divine destruction. So chapter 1, the foundation of divine destruction is the holiness of God. Chapter 2, the fearfulness of divine destruction. The greatest, the strongest, those who are like lions in their own uh, circle of things where everybody's scared of them and, and they have this veneer of being so powerful and, and so prestigious. They are brought to nothing. They collapse when God's judgment comes and it comes with an awful fullness. Now, I've broken Nahum 3 into three parts for you this morning just to set it out and you can make a note of these sections of, of Nahum 3 if you wish. Certainly might be good for you to do when you come to read again. There is Nineveh's sin. That's in verses 1 through to 4. Notice how this chapter begins, Nahum 3. And so you've got the fullness of divine destruction. And again, there's a rehearsal in the first four verses of the sin of this city. It says in verse uh, 1 here, Woe to the bloody city which means literally the city of bloods, which simply therefore indicates, but very terribly indicates, that Nineveh was a place of murder. Murder was wholesale. If you listen to the news, you will find that murder is spreading across cities in this world at a rapid pace. Cities always have been mainly the center of murders. And here is the biblical example. Nineveh was a city of bloods, full of lies, robbery, the prey departeth not. In other words, there's always prey being gained as a result of lying and robbery. I can't go into this in any detail, but if you look with me at verse 4 before we move on here, this is Nineveh's sin. Verse 4 says, Because of the multitude of the whoredoms of the well-favored harlot, the mistress of witchcrafts, that selleth nations through her whoredoms, and families through her witchcrafts. Compare that with Revelation 17. I can't take you there this morning, but Revelation 17 refers to another city called Mystery Babylon the Great. And we find a parallel between Nineveh in Nahum 3, especially verse 4, and Babylon the Great in Revelation 17. You'll find the very same terms just about. They reference to the harlot, the whoredoms, the witchcrafts, the city of bloods, and so on. It's all there in Revelation 17. The point underlined is, and this is the thing to notice, God knows about all the sins of the wicked. He knows about it all. The sin of Nineveh, verses 1 to 4. There's also Nineveh's shame, verses 5 to 7. And again, my time's just about gone here. I cannot take time to read the verses even. But those verses indicate that Nineveh came under awful shame eventually. It says there, I'll just read one verse. Behold, I'm against thee, verse 5, saith the Lord of hosts. I will discover thy skirts upon thy face. I will show the nations thy nakedness and, thy, and the kingdoms thy shame. What God is saying there is, He is going to reveal sin. And notice the language that He uses about skirts and nakedness. If a woman doesn't cover herself properly, she exposes herself. That's a shame. That's why the Lord ordained clothing for fallen man, that men and women would be properly dressed and covered up because due to sin it's a shame to be naked. And it's taken here as a metaphor of the Lord's exposing the sin of this city. So there's Nineveh's shame. And then in the third place, from verse 8 through to verse 19, we have Nineveh's scattering. And you can go through those verses and you will find that the scattering was irresistible and the scattering was inevitable and the scattering was inescapable. And so from verse 8 to verse, 8 to verse 19, Nineveh is seen here as a city that is going to be scattered and completely wiped off the map. 
And let me tell you, Nineveh doesn't exist anymore. It's gone. As God said, it would be gone. Scattered. It was irresistible, couldn't stand against the scattering. All the advantages, all the strengths, all of the power that Nineveh had was all swept away and it was gone forever. No human power could save Nineveh. It was inevitable because, again, of her wickedness. It could not be escaped. If you look there at verse 15, notice what it says, "'There shall shall the fire devour thee, the sword shall cut thee off. It shall eat thee up like the canker worm. Make thyself many as the canker worm. Make thyself many as the locust.'" God is commanding the destruction of this city, and He uses the metaphors here of insects, canker worms and locusts. And what He's saying to His powers, to the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians, act like canker worms and just simply eat up Nineveh. Destroy it. It's inescapable. We have to leave it there. But what an awful picture Nahum 3 brings before us of the destruction of the ungodly. All that they have trusted in will be eaten up. All that they have depended on will suddenly be torn to pieces when God moves against them. My friend, the world is headed for that in a general sense. But so is every impenitent, unconverted soul headed for final destruction. That's the message of Nahum. It is Nahum and Nineveh. That's how you sum it up. Nahum and Nineveh. And God using what He did with Nineveh to warn us today of what the world is headed for even in the last days. Let us bow in prayer and we will commit our way to the Lord. Eternal Father, we just pray that Thy Word will dwell in us richly and that Thou wilt use it. We pray that Thou wilt help us to plead with Thee in these days, that Thou wilt be mercy, merciful unto men, and snatch them as brands from the burning, and come again in power. O Lord, even as You did in Jonah's day, send an awakening. Send it to our own little country, to our own town here, and gather many unto Yourself. Hear prayer, O Lord, and be with us in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.